So Nicholas and I have been talking about memes a lot lately. Um, you know, with this whole Area 51 thing, it's resurrected, the Harambe meme. And Harambe being a gorilla, there's, you know, you could make a good comparison to King Kong. Uh, you know, King Kong gorilla. You know, but as, as fun as it is to, to talk about, we're going to bring in the topic of, of Kong. So I, I was just telling, uh, give me a little bit of backstory. I was just telling Nick about how he needs to get serious for the podcast. We've obviously failed at that task at, at this point. Um, but if we're going to talk about Kongs at this point in time, I think we need to talk about Hong Kong. Uh-oh. Um, so, you know, for those of you who've been paying attention to the news, you know, what's going on in Hong Kong is absolutely crazy. You have, uh, you know, a lot of these Hong Kong protesters, and God bless them, man. You know, they're, mm. they're patriots. They, they're, so, they're fighting for their freedom. You know, God bless the Hong Kong protesters. But, but these Hong Kong protesters, that the reason why they're, they're protesting so passionately is because the Chinese government has been trying to force some things on them that they don't like, notably an extradition bill. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is not the first time something like this has happened. You had the umbrella protests, I think, a few years yep. ago. And, you know, Hong Kong's history has been, um, you know, it's, it's been full of, of various different revolts and protests, you know, and we can get into that a little bit in this podcast. Uh, but the point is, you know, that, that the people in Hong Kong are pretty upset, and, and rightfully so. And the Chinese government has you know been been faced with a bit of a difficult situation because of this yep um because they want to stay in power but there's also some pressure from the international community and today really what we're going to be discussing are the implications that this whole hong kong situation has for united mm -hmm. states foreign policy because on the surface level i mean hong kong's a pretty small territory right um but when you think about it a little bit more deeply you realize that there, there's a lot of social and political significance here um, that there, this is a clash of cultures, is a clash of worldviews, um, and it's something that really could shape the the region um, in, in a lot of ways. That it, you know, the, when you're talking about United States versus Chinese influence, that there's uh, you know it, it could really alter the future of Southeast Asia. Um, so before we get into discussing the current politics of Hong Kong. Um, Nick, why don't you explain to us a little bit about the history of Hong Kong? What, you know, how did Hong Kong come to be? You know, what, what is it about? And, and more specifically, what is the legal status of Hong Kong in relation to China? Okay, well, we could go extremely detailed, but however, we're going to... Well, we could get extremely detailed where it's a bunch of fishermen, but that's a little too much. So, <laughs> yeah. we're I just mean, oh, gonna... hey, something fishy here. Exactly. I mean, it's definitely fishy, but there's no fish apparently. Yeah, uh, but in this but for this such this specific topic, um, we're just going to talk about how Hong Kong came to be, all right? Because originally it was just like what I just said before, a bunch of fishing villages. Yeah. Now, well, actually, I yeah. think the, I think the history of Hong Kong dates all the way back to like prehistoric times. Oh, it's times. it's you know, much that longer. It's, it's been inhabited for a very long time, even before what we would consider as modern China ever existed. Exactly. You could go as far back as the days of the cavemen and hunting mammoths, uh, but. That's really Hong Kong for most of its history up until the last 200 almost yeah about 200 years it there hasn't really been much it wasn't until around the 1840s during the opium wars and the century of humiliation did Hong Kong come of importance because naturally you don't fight a land war in China it doesn't matter how advanced you are so in this case the British decided okay we're gonna have some more influence in the region 
However, we can't just take huge swaths of territory from the Chinese. So, we'll just take a peninsula, an, well, actually an island originally, from China as sort of payment. So instead, we get a little bit of territory that we can develop on our own while we get paid with Chinese money. Mm -hmm. And we can sell the drugs of opium. So after that, it just became more of an outpost or a coaling station in a sense Yeah. Uh, for most of its time. And then later, the British made a new agreement where instead of just one island, it included a peninsula in 1898, which was, a which was in perpetuity, which means basically forever. It, yeah. that it was always going to be British territory. However, in 1898, they decided to lease the new territories, which is what we know of as Hong Kong as a whole, for 99 years. And that was until 1997, I'm sorry, 1997 that it was given to China. But throughout the time, uh, various governors tried to make the place a little more worthwhile. So they turned it into a trading hub, and it did become prosperous, but not to the level that it is right now. And then the Japanese came in in the 1940s and wiped out a little more, almost more than half of the population of 1.6 million, wiped out. Uh, but afterwards, during the Chinese Civil War and later the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward, all of the refugees and people that suffered at that time moved to Hong Kong and they served as the cheap labor for the governors to further industrialize the place. And that's where it became extremely good, especially under a certain administration from 1961 to 1971, which became known as the Hong Kong miracle. And that's where Hong Kong became a powerhouse that we know and love today. And that's why now it's called one of the four tigers. Yeah. South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore. Yeah. But while you had four tigers, you know, it was only a matter of time before a dragon arose. And, Naturally. And that, dragon and that, and that dragon, you know, the, the king of all economies on earth right now yep. um, is the economy of, the, uh, of communist China. Yep. You know, that in real terms, they're bigger than the United States and nominal terms are pretty close. Um, and I think this leads us a little bit into why Hong Kong is such a natural focal point um, mm -hmm. for some of these tensions, because Hong Kong is... It's really the, the, the a pivotal component of a broader shift in the balance of power. That when Hong Kong was first given the legal status that it has now, um, well, actually, I, I misspoke. When, when Hong Kong first obtained the, the legal status that it had um, up to 1997, so you could actually sort of lump those together. When Hong Kong first attained autonomy, you know, the yep. idea that uh, Hong Kong is an autonomous entity, whether fully or in part from China, started because of British imperialism, that Britain mm -hmm. was the primary power in the world at that time, and that as a result, they were able to dictate the terms of their interactions with China. Particularly in the aftermath of the Opium Wars, because yep, that's, that's, something, and that's actually something we're gonna get into a little bit later, because the Opium Wars are very misunderstood. But the long and short of it was, the Chinese didn't wanna honor treaties, so the British resorted to force, and because they basically ruled the world at that point, surprise, surprise, they won. Um, but yeah, that was really the origins of, of Hong Kong's autonomy. But what happened is that, you know, in the, the over 100 years since that's a, that, that happened, uh, the, the balance of power has shifted significantly. Mm -hmm. And that it used to be that the West was dominant and that China was 
the one that was being you know colonized, oppressed, whatever. Yep. Whereas now the shoe's on the other foot. That not only is China dominant in that region, but economically China's colonizing Britain. You know, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, that's a topic for another podcast. But China's sort of colonizing right. Britain. So I mean, mean that, that's one that's one note for the viewers. I know I've mentioned this on another podcast, but China is a colonial power. If you don't believe me, you need to look at what they're doing in Africa and what they're doing in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, but talks about colonial powers aside, that that what's happened is. The, the fundamental circumstances of the balance of power have, have changed. And this is really important for understanding how the world order works because I'm actually writing a book on this kind of stuff right now. It's called, um, it is, it's called Peace Among Nations. And it's basically about you know, how foreign policy can develop for more peaceful ends. Um, and that one of the case studies I'm using is World War I. And that the, what they were talking about was how the reason World War I occurred was because the international order that existed was created at a time when the great powers in the world were different. And that mm-hmm. by the time World War I rolled around, Germany was a lot stronger than it used to be. And you had a lot of empires, notably the Austrians and the Ottomans, that were basically rotting from the inside. Mm-hmm. And that what happened was that the balance of power was no longer reflected in the way that the world order was set up. And that's sort of what's happening right now with Hong Kong. That China, at least in this region, has become, well, in this region, China is undisputably the dominant actor. Globally, they're a dominant actor. The United States, Russia, Britain, and France are sort of challenging them still, but they're definitely on the same level as those countries I just man- mentioned, and economically, they're far above them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's quite a lot of stuff to follow. And uh, I think I missed a little bit of this, and this is where the Hong Kong protests as of right now and also a couple of years ago becomes important. Now, remember what I said when the switch from British rule to Chinese rule in 1997 came into effect. Mm-hmm. Um, originally, China wanted all the territory, all of it back, because it was made of Chinese people, it was Chinese territory, end of story, and the lease was going to end in 1997. However, they wanted all of the territories. So that would include the peace, the peninsula and Hong Kong Island, the Kulun Peninsula, that were originally f- under legal status, purely British territory. Mm-hmm. And the British at the time, this was in the, 19, in the 1990s, late 1980s, given time frame, and the person in power was Margaret Thatcher, yes, the Iron Lady. However, yeah, Very different foreign policy from what Britain has today. Yeah, very different, and sadly, you could say that she was the last tiger, uh, the last lion of the British, yeah. or the, the just, final there's, breath. There's literally a book that says Churchill is the last lion, but... You honestly, know, really, you know, that, honestly yeah. I personally believe that Churchill is the last lion, but people can make arguments otherwise. But yeah. anyway... At this time, Deng Xiaoping, the ruler of China at the time, uh, because of his policies of turning China into a semi-market economy, or rather accept it into their society, decided to strong-arm the British because at this mm. time the British were a shadow of once what they once were a hundred years before. Yeah. So that's why. But however, the British, they wanted to try to uh, get public opinion in Hong Kong to stay British. Instead of being Chinese, because at this point, Hong Kong has become an important center of commerce. Yeah. And the British, no nation wants to lose that. Exactly. Well, and, and what you're saying really bolsters the argument that I was making before. Mm-hmm. Because what I was talking about is how, you know, the stability of world orders and their, their ability to um, adjust to various circumstances is dependent in a lot of ways on their ability to reflect 
the the um, balance of power in the world, and that what happens when they become outdated, when you have stuff that's based on an old balance of power, um, it ceases to be effective. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's going on a little bit here. Like, yes, you have, you know, obviously there's a treaty in that legally Hong Kong was supposed to be handed over during that time, but in the past that would have been on British terms, whereas yep. now it's in Chinese terms. Um, and I think that brings us to the really the, the main focus of this podcast, um, because we're talking about the balance of power. I mean. Britain, at least in the Pacific, is 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 kind of out of the game. Is like you know they, they project power elsewhere. Yeah. But in the Pacific, that's the area of China and the United States. Um, that being said, you know that right now we have some strategic competition going on between the United States and China. Yep. Um, so in your opinion, Nick, and I'll and I'll explain my views after this. Where where does this whole Hong Kong situation fit um, in, in the United States China relations? Hmm. Well, I would say due to the. Pol- I would say this, due to the regional, no, not regional, administrative politics of the Hong Kong territory itself, mind you, technically speaking, Hong Kong autonomy is supposed to continue on, not be infringed for the most part, until I believe it was 2047, where the deal was with the British that Hong Kong would remain, keep its autonomy, stay as rich as it had been in the past under British rule, and stay like that under Chinese rule, for 50 years. We're in 2019. We got another 29, 29, mm-hmm. 29 or so years left. And then you start seeing that new extradition bill that the Chinese tried to bring out, which was later rejected. And now the protesters are saying, okay, since the world is watching us, we're going to try to gain even more autonomy. And the, what America can use in this case is that it's a thorn in China's side. It's another front that the Chinese have to follow. And it's a public relations nightmare if it goes wrong. Exactly. And mind you, one of the major weaknesses, in my opinion, when it comes to the Chinese, is that reputation is everything to them. Yes. Reputation. Reputation is king to the Chinese. And for that to happen, seeing as it would be a very big stain on the opinion that the Chinese are considered as one of the best civilizations or societies or economies on the planet. Mm-hmm. And also, it could hurt business if, for instance, you see a Tiananmen Square massacre repeat in Hong Kong. That's exactly. why the Chinese are not interfering in Hong Kong. At least That's not yet. Not yet. However, there are stories that not only is the military building up on the border, but also there are stories that in the within the Hong Kong protesters, the Chinese have sent their police force and paramilitary in there to start acting like violent protesters to uh, degrade them. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening. If they're able to accomplish that, then that gets rid of one public relations. And that's what the Chinese have been doing lately. They've been trying to change public opinion in their favor and say the Hong Kong protesters, that one, there's not many of them, and they're super violent. That's their opinion. Yeah. But... And also, for some reason, journalists are not allowed in there, or they can't really do much. Yeah. Or they'll get arrested. Well, and what's interesting too is how the the corporate world is pretty divided on Hong Kong right now. It's weirdly because, divided. Because on one hand, on one hand, the free market that Hong Kong has and the importance that it has for international banking and trade and business um, is something that has benefited a lot of corporate interests, and that they there there are a set of businesses that want to maintain the status quo for that reason, that they stand to lose a lot of money. As a matter of fact, um, our, our friend Myra from University of Libertarians is actually talking about how for her, her business, the manufacturer is in Hong Kong, yep. and that is disrupting things. But on the other hand, 
you also have corporations that are associated with you know, and, and I'm trying not well, to sound. No, I'm trying yeah. not to sound too much like a conspiracy theorist here, but I think this is, uh, you know, a good term to use. We're associated with, it, like, I guess we could say, the globalist agenda, um, of which the Chinese Communist Party is a part, um, and that they want to expand the power and influence of, of communism, of socialism, mm -hmm. and authoritarianism, it's simple and, that they, and that they yeah. see Hong Kong as a threat. And for me, here's what it comes down to: like, in terms of how it fits into the United States national security policy. And really just world order more broadly is it, it can be broken down into three things. Mm -hmm. I think the first is there's a legal, there is the um, social, and then there's the geopolitical. So with the legal side, um, the, one of the reasons why I think Hong Kong is so central to understanding the relationship between the United States and China um, is because really it's about the supremacy of rule of law and international relations. Mm -hmm. We talked earlier about how there's a treaty um, governing when Hong Kong is supposed to be handed over completely because right now they've been handed over partially, but China's supposed to take over 50 years from the date of, of Britain, the transfer. Yeah, of the transfer from Britain to China. Um, so China going for the, uh, you know, if they go for the jugular early, um, or even if they don't, even the fact that they're attempting to assert more control over Hong Kong is an open challenge to rule of law and international relations. And I think how this is handled, when we're talking about the future of Hong Kong and how we should respond to China's actions, what's ultimately at stake here is whether rule of law is supreme over the Chinese Communist Party mm -hmm. or if the Chinese Communist Party is supreme over rule of law. And furthermore, I think even within that, even within the rule of law framework, you have sort of a, a contradiction here. Um, so normally self-determination and territorial sovereignty go hand in hand. But as in Ukraine, uh, Hong Kong is one of those weird situations where they're actually at odds with each other. Mm -hmm. That because Hong Kong technically is part of China still, so if you go from a territorial sovereignty perspective uh, and you use that argument, like say an international court or something, it would make a lot of sense that the Chinese Communist Party really does have complete control there. Whereas if you look at it from more of a self-determination perspective, if you're more a part of the school of thought that believes that people have the right to choose their own government and that that should be incorporated into international law, that that would be more on the side of the Hong Kong protests. Mm -hmm. There's a social side. Well, this I think is a little bit social, a little bit political, a little bit ge uh, um, a little bit philosophical. The last one would be geopolitical, but the 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 you know social, political, and philosophical um, is about the supremacy of democracy in the world and the place mm -hmm. of democracy in the world as the dominant political system because the fact that Hong Kong is there and that China has been forced to tolerate it is sort of a testament to the dominant status that the democratic countries have held in the world that not only have democratic countries for the past hundred years held the lion's share of the world's geopolitical power um, but even normatively and ideologically like even in instances where the hard power might belong to an authoritarian country like China mm -hmm. as is the case with Hong Kong that democratic and republican forms of government are, are, are sort of normatively and ideologically dominant to such an extent that authoritarian regimes are forced to tolerate them and what's at stake here is that if the Hong Kong protesters get what they want um, if they're able to win out against the Chinese government, it's going to spread. That's supporting the status quo. And again, you're right, it might even spread. Whereas if China is able to successfully put down the Hong Kong protests, whether it be through violent or peaceful means, that's going to signify a transition um, towards a world where authoritarianism is more dominant. Or even if it's not the dominant system, it's at least strong enough to stand up against democracy in its own backyard. Mm -hmm. The last one is the geopolitical. 
Um, and this is really a, a test of the extent to which the Chinese Communist Party is able to exert world affairs. Because obviously the United States has an interest in keeping Hong Kong free. Um, and as I alluded to in my first point, upholding rule of law. China does not believe in either of those things. And the outcome of this is going to be something that I, I think it is a reflection of the balance of power between China and the United States. That if it, with the United States obviously were for the Hong Kong protests, and, and Trump even uh, mentioned that a trade deal would be dependent on China dealing with the situation humanely. And that if China backs down, or if the United States actively engages in some sort of struggle and is able to win, that's going to solidify the geopolitical control the United States has and make the Communist Party look weak. Whereas if China is able to prevail, it's going to make the Chinese Communist Party look strong and it's going to help them advance their geopolitical goals because Hong Kong is going to be something that... Mm -hmm. um, it's that one it, less it, thorn. It's, it's one less thorn and it allows them to ex expand their influence um, you know, over not only over their territory, but also over the the principles that the international order is based on. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's the way I understand Hong Kong as it is, because in my opinion, it's all it's always going to be a thorn in Chinese side. Why? Because to the Chinese people, especially in the ones in Hong Kong, it the existence of Hong Kong as it is proves to the to the rest of the world and especially to the mainland China that it's not only possible and workable but it's actually possibly more beneficial for them to go the hong kong route yeah so i think switching gears the the next thing we want to discuss i think is talking strategy mm -hmm. because and this is where the united states interest becomes more involved so from an american perspective you know that recognizing the impacts that this could have and the potential that the chinese communist party has to expand its power um, using this situation. We really need to watch the, uh, over the, what's going on in Hong Kong carefully, and I think mm -hmm. do whatever we can to support the Hong Kong protesters. That being said, that does need to be carefully balanced with other priorities, such as you know, not trying to provoke China too much, yeah. and, and also avoiding doing anything that could be an affront to other countries. Luckily, um, and this is where I think that, that things are kind of optimistic in a sense for the United States, the whole Hong Kong situation, given China's strategy, puts the Chinese Communist Party in a major pickle. Oh, yeah. Um, it's in and, a huge and, and, pickle. And here's, and here's why I say that. So it has to do with the fact – so it, it has to do as much with China's strategy as it does with America's. And as a matter of fact, I think after this we could discuss some ways that China might counter this. But I think the biggest mistake that China is making in this situation is they're trying to play the short game. That you know, because the terms of the agreement dictate that – Hong Kong will be fully transferred over to Chinese control in, you know, I think 40-something years. At this I believe point. it was uh, 2047. But yeah, 2047. So, okay, just over like 20 years from now, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, or almost 30, I think, actually, pretty close to 30. But so if they play the long game, they kind of have an advantage. Uh, but what's happening is that with them trying to assert their control now, they're actually shooting themselves in the foot. Because China's put itself in a situation where no matter which way this goes, in terms of them responding to the protests, they're going to face major obstacles. So if they crack down violently, the Chinese Communist Party is obviously going to get a lot of backlash from the international community. Mm -hmm. As I just mentioned, President Trump has said that if they respond in a way that's not quote-unquote humane, 
that there will be no trade deal. And that's something, considering that they're an exporting mercantilist power, that's going to be very important for China to consider. But on the flip side, if they don't do anything, the Chinese Communist Party is going to look weak. And that could be something that makes them more prone to internal instability. Because the thing about China that a lot of people don't understand is that it's not nearly as monolithic as the Chinese Communist Party would like people to believe. You have a lot of minorities, the Falun Gong, the Tibetans, the Uyghurs, the Manchurians, the Mongolians, Mongolians, who um, are, are very resentful towards the Han Chinese and especially towards the Chinese Communist Party. And they're being kept in line by fear. They're being kept in line by the fear that something, you know, a a Tianmen might happen to them uh, if they defy the Chinese Communist Mm -hmm. Party. If Hong Kong is able to do this successfully, um, as is exponentially more likely if the Chinese government does not use force, then that is going to give other regions of China the courage to stand up to the Chinese Communist Party. Because because Hong Kong, especially because they're an island and because China's military is so big, that they're in a very weak position right now and that if Hong Kong can prevail, so can a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. The thing is, this is my take on this, if the Hong Kongers succeed, because one, there's already a bit of a terrorist situation in China over in the uh, Xinjiang province. The Chinese don't want to admit it, but you can even look it up when it comes to travels through the CIA. Whenever This is what I was told from my study abroad in China. Uh, for recommendations. They say, you know, things to worry when you're in China, depending on where you go, uh, there's the worry that there will be terrorist attacks predominantly from the Uyghurs. So there already exists. If Hong Kong succeeds, then the Uyghur population is going to respond even more and act. And then once that occurs, it might actually invigorate the Tibetans to act. And it just becomes a domino effect. And then there's also the Falun Gong and a number of Chinese citizens which I have come across who have said that they are not in favor of the Chinese Communist Party, and they've even told me this. The Chinese Communist Party right now is going into some a sort of civil war with itself yeah. between the hardliners and more moderates. Yeah. Well, and I think that, that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about how China is making a mistake playing the short game, at least when it comes to mm-hmm. Hong Kong. They're trying to consolidate. Because, so the, the problem is that so, so China has been ruled by nationalists ever since Mao took power. But you have nationalists and you have ultra-nationalists. And the thing is that Xi Jinping is very eager to assert himself. That the way, ever since, especially since Deng Xiaoping, because Mao was a little bit different, mm-hmm. but especially since Deng Xiaoping, China's strategy predominantly um, as a global power has been one of thinking more long-term and biding their time and waiting until they're stronger economically and militarily than enemies to confront them. Xi Jinping is a little bit different. Xi Jinping is willing to shake things up, even in situations where China might not have an undisputed advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think Hong Kong is sort of symptomatic of that tendency. And you see more of that in the South China Sea and even in their relations with Japan, their support of North Korea, etc. That Xi Jinping has been a lot more assertive. Um, and the reason why there's such a civil war going on within the Chinese Communist Party is because, on one hand, Xi Jinping has generated results. Yeah. I mean, he undisputedly has led China forward a lot in a very short period of time. Yeah. But the problem is that they're facing the very backlash that they sought to avoid when creating their grand strategy. Mm-hmm. That the, the like As the 100 Year Marathon, a book that I read by Michael Pillsbury, talks about, that the, the idea of... of taking more of a long-term approach, waiting to have economic dominance before you use force and coercion to do things, um, is that you're able to maintain a facade of being peaceful 
uh, which tricks other countries into uh, into appeasing you and not being so hostile, and then you can strike when you're ready. Mm-hmm. Whereas what Xi Jinping is doing is causing countries to see China for what it really is, um, and and they're starting to respond more harshly, as can be seen with, with China's trade war. Uh, but that being said, that I think you know when it comes to the Hong Kong situation, that, that it only further feeds that divide because mm-hmm. what's going on with Hong Kong. The fact that China could win so easily if they play the long game, coupled with the fact that the short-term strategy of trying to take more control over Hong Kong right now is really creating a lot of problems for China, between those two things is, is giving ammunition to the moderates within China. Um, and when you consider that the ultra-nationalists are the ones in power, that's destabilizing things. It's, it's, it's fueling a challenge to the yep. existing regime in China because you have a group of people that's different from who currently rules over the mm-hmm. country gaining political ammunition and seeing this as a reason why yeah. China should hit the brakes on the nationalism and on the aggressive foreign policy a little bit, lest the world stop its rise. Because you've got to remember, China's rise has been driven heavily by exports. It's been he- driven heavily by their ability to consolidate control over natural resources and world financial markets and that sort of thing. And while that control is probably more complete than any other country in the world, it's not 100% complete in absolute terms, and that they're still growing, they're still mm-hmm. building, and that the international community as a result still has a lot of tools that they could use to punish China if they did something like rolling in tanks no. to deal with the Hong Kong protesters. Well, part of the reason also to consider is that why China's trying to consolidate and the rate of consolidation is even faster now, it's not just what's going on within China, but also the business perspective as well. Because, mind you, China is very famous, well, notoriously infamous, rather, of IP theft, intellectual property theft. And this is what happens. Whenever, typically an American company, whenever they go into China, uh, there's not really any IP protection laws that exist in China. And if it does, it's very uh, select. And what happens is the Chinese government or very smart individuals will copy and paste and try to act as competition to those American companies or other companies as a whole. So in response to that, and also because there's cheaper labor in other countries, namely Vietnam, the Philippines, and India, all of that industry and finance and investment, they're all slowly going to these other countries. This is why China's trying to consolidate even faster, because if they don't consolidate soon enough, the the advantages that they have is going to shrink and it has been shrinking over the years and a good indicator of this is their gdp growth in the past it used to be 10 percent now it's roughly about six percent and still dropping Mm -hmm. so for them well that's still really good but compared to what they're used to is a lot more mind you in the rule of industrialization once it reaches the peak once you see that it starts shrinking down when it's moves itself from an industrial-based economy to a service-based, yeah. such as things such as finance, uh, transportation, communications, technology, and the like. Industrialization starts to slow down, and that's where you start considering them as a developed nation. Once it's been given that developed status, they're going to go to the more developing nations where labor's cheaper, they could do more, and less legal problems. Well, and what's, what's happening is that like basically what, like what, what happens at that point is that that's when countries become post-industrial and that when the countries go post-industrial is when they start declining economically mm-hmm. and China, or, they, or they stagnate at least from a geopolitical perspective because they might have the GDP growth 
but that will be driven by sectors that are less related to industry and national security. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that their, their weapons production capabilities and their microchip production capabilities are not going to be up to snuff compared to developing countries. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, uh, you know, that they're going to be forced in a situation where eventually they have to play a weaker and weaker hand um, in international politics. And China yeah. knows that. And that what they're trying to do is maintain, I wouldn't even say that because you can't develop forever at that rate. You can't. But there's so a limit. What, what's, there's countries that are not industrial. There's industrializing. There's industrial and there's post-industrial. China is at the tail end of industrializing and um, in the beginning of industrial. And they want to try to prolong that industrial period yep. as long as possible. Because what China fears in a lot of ways is interconnectedness with the global economy. That they want to be self-sufficient and they want to have control of the world's industries and resources. That way the Chinese Communist Party mm -hmm. can force its will upon other countries and other entities yep. such as corporations in international relations. Um, and, and drawing this back to Hong Kong, because I don't want to get too off topic. Of course, that, 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 I was about to go into that. Drawing this back to Hong Kong, I think ideologically, that's another reason why Hong Kong is so difficult. Because Hong Kong is the epitome of international interconnectedness and free trade. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's literally how it's a uh, shining it, example. That, that's literally how it became such a strong economy, um, and that the Chinese realized that, and that even if they have territorial control over Hong Kong in a de jure sense, as long as Hong Kong continues being a free market economy with Western liberal norms prevalent within a society, it's going to be an ideological and also economic challenge to the ability of the Chinese mm -hmm. to shape the regional and world order, yep. particularly when it comes to trade in their favor. This is also a reason why they're trying to consolidate just quickly as well. How, because if they're able to, because here's the thing, this is, you can draw this as an example from a number of histo other historical examples where if the society is used to a certain way of life, specifically the more autonomy that you have, the more they're going to get accustomed to it, the more they're going to appreciate it. And the minute you start consolidating it into a more central government or a more authoritarian type of system where the people have less autonomy, they're going to start pushing back. Because what happens when, you, when you're exposed to freedom, when you get that first taste you're of freedom. You're addicted. When you get that first taste of freedom, freedom tastes good. It you tastes know, good. Freedom is like a drug. It's like, you know, when you're talking about like a Coke addict, right? A Coke addict takes a hit of Coke and what do they want? They want more Coke. They want you more. And, and that's when it's like, you know, if you're used to oppression, more oppression is just going to be normal. Yeah. But what happens is that if you get used to freedom, yeah, you're going to start wanting more of it. And that much, the situation that China faces is actually very similar with Hong Kong to what the, the British Empire faced with the United States. Mm -hmm. um, that the United States, the American colonies, that, you know, obviously, as, as anybody who studied American history knows, that the American colonies were subject to a very tyrannical rule under the British government. But that's not always how it was. Yeah. Um, what happened was that the, the British government in, initially took a very hands-off approach. Like the, yeah. British, the British Empire was called the Accidental Empire, you know, because it, was, it just sort of spread out and that people were able to, they were free to do what they wanted. And that what happened was that the reason why the Americans revolted was not because of the fact that the, the British rule was authoritarian. Like if it had been authoritarian from the beginning, they could have easily been made accustomed to that. Yep. What happened was that they had a hundred years or so to get used to freedom, and then the British wanted to take it away. And what happens, once a norm has been internalized within the society, it's very, very, very mm -hmm. difficult to reverse that, at least in the short term. Because I do think that, once again, what China could do 
is play the long game. If they abide by the treaty and allow Hong Kong to be retaken completely under the terms that were initially set forth, then they could use their sovereign authority to brainwash the population and to reintegrate mm -hmm. them within yep. Chinese society. There'll be less dissidents on top of that. So I think this is a good time. We talked a little bit of, of history. We talked a lot, a bit, uh, a lot actually about strategy. Um, now it's time to talk about policy. Oh boy. Because when, when the United States is looking at this uh, from a perspective of not only protecting its own interests, but also protecting rule of law, um, I think we've identified that playing the short game is our strength. That if we get China to try to do things quickly um, and to upset the status quo in ways that are big and noticeable, because of this this pickle that they're in that we talked about earlier, this this big you know pickle Rick situation that they have mm -hmm. with Hong Kong, that that's going to be an advantage to the United States. Whereas if China goes for the long game, they're going to have not only the geopolitical but also the legal backing. Uh, backing uh, to be able to, to get what they want. So I think the goal for the United States is to lure China into more of a short-term fight for Hong Kong. Keep and, pressuring them. And, and how do you think we should do that? Now, I know that Trump is already doing a little bit of this, like with the trade deal mm. and everything, but is there anything in addition to that um, that, that you would recommend? Like, what sort of policies can the United States enact to put the ball in China's court and sort of force them to act now? That way, either A, they'll have to back down, or B, they can crack down on Hong Kong, and we can use that to justify more aggressive economic and military policies towards China and convince other countries to take our side. Okay. Well, this is from, well, if America has to do it, it's going to be a little challenging because you can't just send people in there into Hong Kong because the Chinese are going to, if the Chinese catch American uh, officials in there, it's going to support their argument saying outside forces are getting involved or interfering in Hong Kong uh, policies. So uh, in this case for America, what they need to do is make more fronts. They need to make more fronts for the Chinese to fight on. And as surprisingly difficult as this is, one way of doing this is America needs to act more in favor of Taiwan and respond more with them or things such as military equipment, more trade deals involving the Taiwanese specifically with more military matters, also get more involved in Vietnam because Vietnam definitely has a distrust of the Chinese. Build them up as an ally. You could do that. Uh, another way is that you can also consolidate power in the Philippines and get rid of someone like Duarte because he's being a thorn in American side. So there are those. Uh, closer relationship with the Indians. So in my opinion, that, that's, that's the best route that they could do. Uh, now, there's the more radical option, and you just copy what the Chinese have been doing in the South China Sea, which that is very controversial to do, and that is making new islands there. Mm -hmm. So uh, another way could be that the president, Trump, uh, he could just say he's in favor of the Hong Kong protesters, which is even more radical. So that is very difficult. I would say it's very difficult because you have to work from the outside in. You can't go from inside. Otherwise, you're going to end up defeating your own purpose. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So for me, I think it, it boils down to making sure that we're able to exploit this as an opportunity mm -hmm. um, to get the Chinese Communist Party to make concessions that are beneficial to the U.S. interests. And I think mm -hmm. the way to do that is by connecting issues that are of significant importance to China to Hong Kong. So things like 
Trump has already done this with trade, but I think we should throw Taiwan in the mix too. Taiwan would be the best method. That because you know obviously you know we we have to think of this from the perspective of strategic balancing. That even though Hong Kong is very important for U.S. and global interests, and even though the podcast is after all about Hong Kong. We don't want to become so laser focused on Hong Kong that we lose the war to win the battle. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to recognize that Hong Kong is a piece on the chessboard, and that whether yep. and that whether Hong Kong falls or not to the Chinese Communist Party, we need to have a contingency in both situations to make sure that whichever way it goes is favorable mm-hmm. for United States interests. Yep. So what I think needs to happen is what what the United States can do is we can use this as an opportunity to. Um, to to subvert Chinese Communist Party ideology um, and try to weaken the country internally. And if that doesn't work, we can use it as a justification for military and economic action. So Mm -hmm. what I think we need to do, because I think I agree with you that interfering directly right now would be too radical. That very, very dangerous. We don't want to make the first move in this situation, at least as far as military options are concerned Mm -hmm. and the reason for that is because that would help china's propaganda cause however i don't think we need to stand by idly either because in the absence of a deterrent china is going to just do what they feel like right what i think that the united states needs to do is make an ultimatum of some sort or maybe a series of ultimatums what needs to happen similar to what trump did on trade i think we should go even further i would think what the united states needs to do is that if Hong Kong, we need to issue an ultimatum that if the Hong Kong protests are cracked down upon violently, we will give Taiwan nuclear weapons and we will send armaments to Hong Kong to help the protesters get armed as an insurgency against the Chinese. And you don't do it. You don't. You say it before you do it. You make it clear to the Chinese. And what it does is that it gives the Chinese a way out and a way to de-escalate the situation. However... In doing that, they also concede a lot of the United States' interests. Because right. what happens is that you... It, it you might by, even be able to reverse the treaty. Because by, by making it dependent on a peaceful resolution of the Hong Kong protests, what that does is that it, it makes it so that China's core interests still can be theoretically satisfied. They're just not able to do it in a way mm-hmm. that challenges the status quo. Um, and so it prevents them from being revisionist effectively. Um, and then that could incentivize more moderate yeah. um, powers within the Chinese Communist Party. That what could happen is that they, they would have option A, abide by the treaty, get Hong Kong back eventually, or if it happens sooner, it would be through peaceful means, or B, deal with a nuclear-armed Taiwan in the United States sending weapons to Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really going to pull the rug out from underneath Xi Jinping if we were to do such a thing. Yeah, that's going to be because, a major headache. Because what's going to happen is that the moderates are going to be able to say, we can get control of Hong Kong pretty easily. Um, so why should we be so, so aggressive? Yeah, you know, uh, and so yeah, exactly. So why should we be so aggressive? And that the, the, the super hawks and the ultra-nationalists are going to be faced with justifying putting China in a situation where more United States troops and forces and armaments are going to be on their border. Um, and we're all sorts of different interests because mind you this is on top of the trade thing that Trump has already yep. done That all sorts of different interests are going to be at mm-hmm. stake the only problem that I would see though is That some of the moderates in the Chinese Communist Party while they might be more moderate in their means Have the same goals and I mentioned earlier that it's easier for them to conceal their true intentions from the world if they bide their time. And in some ways, the ultra-nationalists trying to act right now 
provides a good pretext for the United States uh, taking harsher action against China and defending its interests more staunchly. So how are we guarded against um, this being used just as an opportunity to make China seem peaceful when in reality they have more revisionist long-term ambitions? Like if we're able to get a peaceful resolution to the Hong Kong situation um, where there's no crackdown mm-hmm. and that the protesters' demands are either met or they're squashed peacefully somehow without violence, how do we ensure that that translates into reduced Chinese power in the long term? Oh boy, um, I don't exactly know. I I can't really think of one right on the top of my head that could do that because, like you just said, if it if the moderates take power, then it's just going to be the long game. Or you could, and you could uh, use the Trump method and threaten trade deals, or in your case, bolster Taiwan to. Uh, force the Chinese to divert their attention and then soften relations with the Hong Kongers. Now, what's also interesting here, the reason why I, another reason why I'm saying that we can't just get directly involved with Hong Kong because one, we're still a republic, so we can't exact and we don't nationalize companies that much. We should. That would be an interesting topic <laughs> that we should probably discuss at another time. State-owned companies. There exactly. We go. But in I, w- I would have said the other method that we could have used is try to force the companies that are big in China to come back and get them out of China or weaken their influence in China or rather the Chinese influence over them. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a, now that's one way to get in. However, that I would say that's probably the most difficult and almost impossible. Now, what I'm saying, another reason that I've – there's this other thing that I found out and you don't need American involvement. You have American citizens getting involved, but not the government. Now, earlier you said the memes. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like memes. Uh, I know this sounds crazy, but... Considering how this podcast started, I'm not surprised. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, because for those who decide to look into this about Hong Kong, surprisingly, the Hong Konger protesters, they have been using the meme Pepe as a signal for greater... Uh, de- uh, greater autonomy for themselves and that uh, seeing that as a symbol and then even waving the American flag not just the American flag because not the American flag because oh they want America to get involved rather it's what the American flag represented when it was born mm-hmm. and they're even saying lines such as be the America that we believe you are or that they're even singing our national be, be anthem. The, be the America that the Hong Kongers think that we are. Exactly. And they're even singing it. Although, as tone deaf as they are, it's still beautiful to hear that from an American. Uh, but with the Pepe ones and the memers, what's interesting about them is that they typically go to 4chan. And what's interesting with the Hong Kongers is that they have better access to the internet. Yeah. Unlike what's happening in the mainland with the Great Firewall. Mm-hmm. So... This is a way for the Hong Konger protesters to reach out to outside and get the rest of the world to respond. And you know what? And I think I think from from so you did a good job, I think, elaborating on the Hong Kong's the Hong Kong perspective. Um, but you really gave me an idea about how to answer that original question. Uh, that's a little bit different from what my original answer was going to be. I think 
So what you're talking about with the memes, right, and, and all this stuff, and not not even just the memes. I said the memes are actually more of a minor thing. It's more like a symptom. The, the American flag and like the, their their tendency to associate themselves with the ideals of the United States. I think the way that we can make sure that a peaceful transition um, in Hong Kong benefits American interests in the long term is to make sure that the spirit of the Hong Kong protest stays Americanized. So I think the most dangerous thing that we can allow to happen right now is for Hong Kong's own identity to become too Chinese. Because I think ha allowing Hong Kong to have its own identity is going to be something that's very important. You know, that's one of the reasons why China's been able to be kept at bay as long as it's been. Mm -hmm. uh, because the Hong Kongers see themselves as distinct. That, you know, a lot of people in Hong Kong see themselves as Hong Kongers more so than Chinese. Yep. So we want to keep that. But because of the position they're in, they're inevitably going to associate themselves, you know, to, to some extent or another um, with one of the two countries. And that by making sure that the Hong Kong protests and Hong Kong in general stays as Americanized as possible, what we can do. Remember how earlier I was talking about how international order and international law are a function of geopolitical interests and the balance of power. What we can do is if we use information warfare and informal and uh, informal i'm going to emphasize informal diplomatic relations to help build a relationship between the united states and hong kong we could potentially support uh, subvert the treaty mm -hmm. that's not, the best case thing, scenario not de, not de jure but de facto and here's mm -hmm. why because what would happen is that if the hong kongers continue to identify more and more strongly yeah with American norms, with American political philosophy, with American legal traditions, um, and you know, and, and other associated things, what we can have eventually is a circumstance where the Chinese, even when the it gets to the point where the treaty dictates full control goes back to the mm -hmm. Chinese, by then the Chinese could be forced into a situation where they effectively have to swallow a porcupine. Because it, it, you know, Hong Kong will have become so detached from the Chinese Communist Party. Mm -hmm. So you can sort of kill two birds with one stone, um, or create a sort of weird normative deterrence against China. Uh, because what would happen is that when that fifty years is up, that they'd be forced into, I guess, the same position that they're having to deal with right now, um, where you know they're in that they're in that pickle again. You know, mm -hmm. and I think as things currently stand. That, you know, if China is able to get its way with, with Hong Kong and if, if the status quo is sort of maintained with the treaty and everything um, and with Hong Kong's government, then it's possible that they could slowly assimilate Hong Kong back into their territory. But if the United States were to actively engage in policies such as I mentioned, mm -hmm. information warfare or informal diplomatic relations that actively seek to pour gasoline on that pro-America fire that exists yep. within Hong Kong, um, that we could make sure that it stays strong enough that China mm -hmm. just ends up in the same situation, but you know, twenty something years from now. And, and I think that's the way that we're able to counter China's long-term advantage. Because, like I said, as things currently stand right now, China can win by playing the long game. Right. But we could change that by trying to engage with Hong Kong more actively. Right. Turn the flashpoint into a forest fire. Exactly. Um, so this is what's interesting because in the very beginning of this Hong Kong protest, when I was in China, originally, thank goodness I had a VPN so I knew what was going on. Yeah. Um, but originally they were waving the colony flag yes. when they were under when the, when it used to be under British rule, and then it switched to a independent idea, 
which that is actually something I'm more interested in the American example, the one that you brought up, Preston. Uh, however, it seems like to me that's going to be the one of the toughest battles ever, but yet one of the best ones. Yeah. Now the but the more moderate and probably the most likely scenario, if America decides to uh, turn that flashpoint into a force fire, in my words, is that maybe it might be a better idea to turn it in, basically into a city state under protections of both the Chinese and the Americans. That way you don't piss off the Chinese too much, but at the same time, they don't have that kind of influence in the region as much. Yeah, but I could but see that's, that. But that's a mixed bag. I could see that backfiring because if you have American, if you have American and Chinese forces in close proximity to one another, it's like not gonna, that. It's going to be weird. It's not going to be a good exactly. situation. That's why I like your idea way better. Yeah, and, and, and it can thing, go. It can and, and I, like so, so. The thing is, for me, is that there's one flaw I see in my idea, and that that's why I brought up the ultimatum beforehand. The flaw that I see in my idea is that the Chinese could take more of a hardline approach. And that's why I would only do that if there was an mm -hmm. ultimatum. That what it is, is that if we don't do anything um, if, uh, in terms of making other issues dependent on how Hong Kong is resolved, that uh, China could sort of just go in there and that, yeah, they're going to face some international backlash, but Tiananmen Square showed that China is willing to deal with international... Right. And, and actually, and here's, here's one of the reasons why I think that America needs to get involved, not only for its own sake, but for the sake of the people of Hong Kong. Because I think that if nothing is done uh, by outside powers mm -hmm. to help facilitate a peaceful resolution to this situation, China will crack down. Right. And here's why. Because China historically has valued internal harmony much more even than respect um, on yep. the international stage. Because you were talking earlier about how reputation and respect are very important in Chinese society. But there's one thing that's more important, and that's harmony. And yep, that stability is stability and that like, you know, I'm reading this book right now called the dragon and the foreign devil. So then Nick actually introduced me to this very good book. I'm about halfway done with it. But what they were talking about is that China historically has been willing to endure terrible suffering to ensure that the social order remains stable mm -hmm. and that anything that's a challenge to that is going to be something that they're willing to put down. So yep. I think if the situation were just allowed to run its course, I think it would be inevitable yep. that there would be Chinese military action in Hong Kong. The only way to deal with this situation and to facilitate a peaceful transition of power um, or to stave off a transition of power mm -hmm. altogether is to take a more forceful approach. And that what would happen is that if you have this ultimatum, the reason why I think the, more, the subversive approach would work in that situation is because it would lock China out of the more extreme courses of mm -hmm. action. That what would happen is that, like for example, Taiwan is a very central political and normative importance to the Chinese. So that's something that could affect their social order. Um, same thing with trade, that they have this ancient idea of the mandate of heaven, which sort of still implicitly exists. They, yeah. don't, they don't use that terminology as much, but it sort of still implicitly exists yes. because there's an idea, there's a sort of reciprocity. It's almost like feudalism yeah. in the sense that people expect the government to bring about good results in exchange for their loyalty. Mm -hmm. So they're very sensitive to anything that could hurt their economic growth. And that by locking China out of A, more extreme actions, and B, long-term strategies, that's how the United States is able to win. If mm -hmm. the United States is able to force China into a position where they have to both engage us in the short term and do so without using coercion or military they will, force, yep, they will that is the final nail in the coffin of Chinese hegemony um, 
right. at least in terms of political ideology, because militarily right. they're still going to keep going. Yeah. But but Hong Kong can, can if Hong Kong can continue being a thorn in China's side, not only is it going to be something that challenges our ideology. But China's inability to get rid of that problem is going to be something that really hurts their credibility on the world stage and reaffirms the status of the United States as the dominant power. Mm-hmm. It's going to force – because here's the thing. Remember what you said when you talked about stability. This whole, I, this whole situation that you just described, we're not talking about the possibility – of China basically falling into another civil war. That is very unlikely. Yeah, not over however, something like this, at least yeah. not by itself. However, however, what's going what's most likely to happen if this all if this Hong Kong situation becomes the way that you just described, Preston, then the most likely scenario is that yes, China will get will drop the hegemonic route because they're gonna divert every resource they possibly have to keeping the country stable for the next, I would say another anywhere from 30 to 50 years before they can start coming back. But by that point, either the U.S. would have to fall apart by then, or the U.S. will remain as one, as almost the sole superpower of the age. So we're going to end this podcast a little bit differently, because I think we've covered most facets of the issue, um, and you know we're, we've got a good amount of time. But I want to do a couple of things. Okay. The first thing is I want to give our listeners some food for thought. Mm. But the second thing is I want to emphasize the importance of, of one of the most fundamental principles of military strategy, and that is you have to understand the enemy. You have to understand how the enemy thinks if you're going to counter them. So with all the things that we talked about in mind, both the things that the United States is already doing, as well as some of the policies that you and I have recommended that we could do in addition to that, I have one final question. If you were in China's shoes... What do you think China's counter strategy should be? So assuming that the United States both continues doing what it's doing and slash or implements what we're suggesting, what are some policies or strategies that China could enact uh, to render those ineffective and to make sure that even if America does everything within its power um, to, to try to make sure that this situation turns out in its interest, that China can still gain from it. And, and the food for thought part for our viewers is we want you to think about this too. Um, we're we're going to kind of end this in an unconventional way. We're going to leave you with a question. You know, uh, what, what do you think? So, Nick, go ahead. Before, before I go oh, off on my tangent, how, what, if you were in China's shoes, what would you do about this? Ooh, I better make a good example since I was in China and read about it and did papers. <laughs> Um, I would say if I were in China's shoes, I would, or rather in Xi Jinping's shoes, um, a lot of the stuff that he's doing right now is roughly what I would be doing as well. I would be committing to uh, first. I would try to consolidate China's internal power, again, be, you know, get rid of that civil war situation between the hardliners and the moderates. If I were in Xi Jinping's shoes, I would commit to anti-corruption campaigns. However, he's doing too much. Mm-hmm. Because eventually he's going to run out of enemies and all he has left are allies and the allies are going to rebel back. So if I were in Xi Jinping's shoes, I would have to slowly cut wait, down on anti-corruption wait, who campaigns. would rebel back? The allies or the enemies? Like The allies. His allies oh, will yeah, eventually. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Eventually, because here's the key. Okay, I think I misunderstood yeah. you for a second. I, you said that before, yeah. but I, I don't know. Yeah. According to the Machiavellian perspective from Niccolo Machiavelli and the Prince... Uh, typically, to consolidate power, you need to get rid of opposition, your opponent within the government. 
And one way to do it is to say something along the lines that it's they're committing to corruption. And that's where Xi Jinping has been doing right. And that has been able to spur public opinion to him. And that's why China has been able, internally speaking, to stay stable. And that's why they've been able to expand in the very few decades that it has decided to take the market route. But if it does it too much, well, one, you run out of enemies. And two, the allies will start doubting each other, thinking, oh, crap, all the enemies are gone. I might be next. Yeah. So then they'll become enemies. So Xi Jinping needs to turn down the notch with dealing with internal enemies. In terms of Hong Kong, I would what I would do, I think I would rather wait it out until the protest dies down. Now, this is where I disagree with their methods because if this is true, because this is what I've been hearing on the web, I don't know if this is true, but according to what's going on, it seems to be that they're sending in their own officials to turn the protest against, uh, like trying to make the protest seem violent. They've done that with the Tiananmen Square, and that's how they were able to crack down without having stability problems. Mm -hmm. However, they can't do that. So it's better for them to wait out the protest, let it die down, because eventually, once you get into talks, you stop not only with the extradition bill, you only follow half of the things that the protesters want and then wait till the treaty ends. I think that would be their best method or rather take more uh, more subtle approaches to consolidating power. Yeah. That's my opinion. I would also try to get more influence over the companies that exist in Hong Kong. Yeah, That would be another one. Uh, in terms of the rest of the world, I would also ramp up the build. I would also ramp up the schedule for the one Belt and Road, the Belt and Road Initiative. That way, I can develop my own uh, vassalage of economic uh, imperialism. That way, yeah. I'm going to have a stronger position and possibly even prop up my economy just fast enough where I can still re be uh, enough to push back the United States from acting out. Yeah. So, and I think the Belt and Road would be a critical part of it in either case. For me, this actually might be one of the issues where we disagree a little bit, Nick. Um, so when it comes to Xi Jinping's strategy, so for, here's my answer. If I were in China's shoes, you know, if I were the leader of China or a high-up Communist Party official and that I saw what America was doing or, or maybe America implemented some of the things that we were discussing, you know, there's one part of Xi Jinping's strategy I agree with, but the rest I don't like. The one part that I agree with is trying to create economic alternatives to Hong Kong. Um, oh, yeah. So, because yeah. so, like, what, what they're trying to do, I think, is it sh not Shenzhen? Is it Chengdao? There's like, no. a city. What's the city that's bordering, Hong, like, real close to Hong Kong? Um, I want to say Guangzhou. However, there are a number of cities around Hong Kong that are turning themselves into the Silicon I Valley think, of I, China. I think, I think Guangzhou is what we were talking about, though. So, what it is, is that one of the reasons why Hong Kong is able to exert leverage. It, well, actually, two reasons. A, because even though it's nowhere near what it used to be, they still make up a pretty significant chunk of the Chinese economy. About 2%, which it sounds small, but for one city, for one city, that's quite a bit. Um, but the second thing is that that economic success in a lot of ways owes itself to the free market principles mm -hmm. that Hong Kong has followed. Yep, by, so, yep. However, you can subvert that whole system uh, by you, propping yep. up countries within the mainland China, no, not, not countries, cities within mainland yeah, China. Yeah, surrounding cities. Yeah, surrounding cities. Um, 
as Xi Jinping is doing. Yeah, make them that by making strong. by making them using by using state support to make them alternative financial hubs and alternative trading yep. centers of Hong Kong, you're able to not only reduce the economic leverage that Hong Kong has, mm-hmm. but also create examples of economically successful communism. Uh, which can really downplay right. the economic successes of yep. Hong Kong. However, on however, the doorstep, that is where my agreement from this perspective, because mind you, we're doing a thought experiment here. You know, uh, I'm I'm 100% pro-American, but from this perspective, that's where my agreement with Xi Jinping would end, because there's there's two th- quotes. Well, there's a quote in a book title that I really would like to share with you. So, Sun Tzu said, "All warfare is based on deception." Um, and there's a book I was reading some parts of not that long ago called Diplomacy in Iron, which was about Otto von Bismarck's son. And I think both of those things are reflective of the type of strategy that China needs to enact um, in order to make sure that Hong Kong turns out in its favor. That what they need to do, because if China just agrees to the U.S. terms, it's going to lose. Whereas right. on the other hand, obviously, as we've discussed, the status quo right now, which what Xi Jinping is doing, puts them in too much of a pickle. There's too much risk for too little gain, regardless of which of the two options China chooses in this framework. What I think China needs to do is agree to the United States on the surface, but in reality have long-term agendas to try to subvert Hong Kong. So basically, the way that they can achieve this is by flipping America's own strategy, tying Hong Kong to other issues. What China can do is this. They can say that we will sign a treaty. And we all, we all know that China doesn't uphold treaties very no. well, So, but they can, they're good at convincing the United States that they can. That, we sign, that China signs a treaty saying that Hong Kong, that the Hong Kong protesters can get all of, they can keep all of like their rights under the English common law system and like due process and stuff. Right. You could add but on a few more decades. On the condition, on the condition that they recognize themselves fully as a part of China. And then furthermore, you could tie it to the Taiwan issue too, that you could say that China will concede to the American position if America concedes to the Chinese position on Taiwan. And what happens is that if America does not accept, you play the long game, that mm-hmm. you continue negotiating, you continue stalling, and you let America be the aggressor a little bit and try to play the victim. But if and when America agrees, so let's say that By some time, treaty, yeah. so let's say that some treaty is signed, or maybe the Taiwan issue goes away or whatever, that's when you crack down on Hong Kong. Don't keep your promises. All warfare right. is based on deception. Hey, that's and what, the one it, it, card that that's one of the few cards that, that the Americans the, the, have over the, the Chinese. fundamental problem that Xi Jinping has, I think, is that he's is it's like I said earlier, he's playing a short term game and he's doing it too early. Mm-hmm. That what I think China really would need to do to win this struggle is play that long game and be willing to be more long term, more diplomatic, and exercise a little bit more of its sharp power and use some coercive diplomacy. Not be so aggressive that it paints China as this hostile revisionist actor, but don't be so passive and and appeasement oriented that the United States is able to kind of get its way with Hong Kong. Like the reason why this pickle exists is because China seems to be operating under this assumption that there's two options. Either they kind of tolerate it or they're hardlining. 
You know, on one hand, they're threatening the United States and Britain to stay out of it. But then on the other hand, they're like, they haven't cracked down yet because they're, they're afraid of, of what could happen as a result yeah, of that. Yeah, because it's going to get out. The, reason, the, the way that China might be able to get themselves out of this pickle is by taking a middle ground option. That rather than either cracking down militarily or allowing things to progress diplomatically along with their natural course, they sort of need to walk a, a weird middle path where they stand up to foreign powers diplomatically um, and that they maintain a stance um, against Hong Kong in terms of the like like the keep keep a stance against Hong Kong like in terms of the political ideology maintain the Communist Party's dominance in Chinese politics um, you know but, but it, it, you sort of balance all of those things together you know the diplomacy and the need mm -hmm. for action and being able to walk that middle that 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 middle ground. Um, that could lead them out of, of some of these difficulties. Hmm. I definitely agree with you with the Taiwan situ with the Taiwan piece because if you do that, you're going to force the Americans to divert their attention towards Taiwan, and also many of the um, much of the American public is more focused on Fredo, for example, Fredo Cuomo. They're, he's, they're focused on more things that are sensational than what is objectively happening right now. Exactly. So very few people like us are, are focusing on what's happening. So yeah, China could do the middle route by forcing the Americans to divert their attention and then continue their policies in Hong Kong and put the Americans in a trap, in a yeah. pickle of their own, where they can either basically give up Taiwan or they give up Hong Kong mm -hmm. to protect Taiwan. So either way, the Americans would lose and it would see, be seen as an embarrassment because they have lost one democratic system exactly. either way. And, and a lot of it really depends on China's ability to paint the United States as an aggressor and to use the terms of the treaty to its advantage. Because the weird thing is that even though China's goal is to challenge rule of law, the, the, one of the strange things about this international system, and actually one of the things that I critique about the current status quo world order in this book that I'm writing right now, is the fact that it enables the conditions for its own demise. Um, mm -hmm. That even though China does not believe in rule of law, that the fact that rule of law kind of act, applies to them, at least as far as the UN and, and customary international norms are concerned, um, that that's something that, that creates a lot of risks and opportunities for them. And this is a wild card. Because while it is an affront to how they traditionally would want to deal with things, to have things treaty-bound, at the end of the day, because the fact that the treaty was written in a way that, that pretty much is in China's favor, and because of the fact that the international balance of power is shifting in the direction that that treaty is leading, with Hong Kong going back to status as part of mainland China, that... Yeah it makes sense for them to play a more conservative strategy um, while having some bits and pieces of sharp power and coercive yeah. diplomacy in there to prevent the United States and its allies from using the situation to their advantage in, in the ways that we discussed mm -hmm. earlier. Because the United States has some ground yeah. to help, to help uh, resolve the yeah. situation on, on its terms in yeah. accordance with that treaty as See, well. See, what's interesting involving the Chinese, and you can agree with me too, thanks to you reading that book I gave you, and it's that China is a master when it comes to the long game. When we read it in history, they're not exactly 
known for short-term strategies. They're not exactly mas they're not masters at it. As the opium wars demonstrated. Definitely. The long game is where it's king. And if it can continue with the long game, then China definitely has a means yeah. to win. In, in fact, I, I think we had said we were going to talk about the opium wars, but it kind of went in a different direction. But no, the you opium know, wars are but that that was that, the foundation. Yeah, to what it's created. but that was fine. And maybe we could have another podcast about that. You know, but but uh, you know, but yeah, that's more of a footnote when it comes to the current Hong Kong mm -hmm. thing. But it's, but it's just it, an ingredient to this yeah. whole soup. But in, in any case, you know, I think that we've. We've had a pretty good podcast, especially considering how tired we are. Like I've been up for a long time, yep. so you know that's why there've been a, you know there've been a couple times where I stumbled a little bit just because you know I I have some low energy. But that being said, you know I think this is a really interesting situation, and this is definitely something that we have to keep our eye on. Mm -hmm. Um, and and you know I really hope that the United States is able to make the most out of this because. While there are a lot, while there are a lot of advantage, there are a lot of avenues open to China for action. But it seems like as of now, they're not taking them, and that because the United States has been taking the initiative in the short term um, aspect of this, that there's a strong possibility that this could be a turning point in an international order that for a long time has been pivoting towards China, and now Hong Kong could be part of something much broader. And that is a transition in global power away from China and back towards the United States. So with that, I mean, that concludes this episode of the Wisdom Factory podcast. Um, if you like what we do, you can check out some of our other podcasts. This is not the first podcast we've had where we talked about China, nor will it be the last. And we also cover a variety of other different topics as well, ranging from art to music to philosophy, military strategy, and even space exploration. We're very interdisciplinary. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. Um, you know that, that I hope Nick and I weren't too boring and that we had some good <laughs> insights. And uh, yeah, that pretty much concludes it. We thank you for listening, and you have a, a good one.